0: Josh, I'm Joe, and this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where hosts take turns challenging each other to browse a unique section of the video store and select a film in under one minute. If a title is not selected in time, we'll have to hit the video dropbox and defer to What's in the Basket. So, Josh, this episode we are tackling, I believe, one of your favorite movies, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, and this came about because you challenged me to choose a sequel where a role had been recast. Uh, What made you think of this particular challenge?
1: Well, other than just being incredibly, like, drawn to sequels that have either entire recasts or just minor ones, I don't know. I'm I'm really intrigued by a lot of the films and and like whether or not people like them or not. I mean, that's one of my questions that I had for you that I was going to maybe hit you with at the end, but I guess I can start here and just kind of ask like your quick opinion of like what your general or overall feeling is towards a film that you really liked and then they make a sequel but they recast a major player. Like, does that bother you at all?
0: Um, I can't think of a time when that was a problem. I remember enjoying Julianne Moore in Hannibal. I'm kicking myself. I really wish I would have thought of April O'Neill for the Ninja Turtles movies, but I, I don't think I ever had a problem with any of her being cast throughout the different movies. Were you ever bothered by a recasting?
1: It's funny that you mentioned Hannibal because I do really like Silence of the Lambs. And while I wouldn't say I was bothered by it, it just is obviously two different performances. That was always one that like, I like both movies, but in my mind, I somewhat disconnect from them. And so getting back to kind of your original question, I think that's why I really liked the genre for this week's pick, because there are a lot of instances like that where people have very strong opinions one way or the other about certain recasts. And I did mention some previously, but you and I went over kind of a list of a few films. Like one of the ones that I specifically think of that I was possibly considering before picking was Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Like that was another right. <laughs> huge one that I know unfortunately didn't read well with people anyway. But we have the Johnny Cage character, the Sonya Blade character. And then we have bigger name films like the Terminator franchise, like doing John Connor. We have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like we said. Even films you wouldn't think of, like the National Lampoon films with Rusty and uh, Audrey. Oh, yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton of films if you really go down that rabbit hole. But I hope hope you had some fun with this.
0: Yeah. And I will point out, technically, this movie is a bit of a cheat. Bernie Mac isn't the same character as Bill Murray. They do reference that. He's Bosley again, but they do make reference that, like, there is a different Bosley. They're yeah, from the, the same family. It's, his so it's close enough.
1: I count it. I count it, not just because yeah. I
0: like this movie a lot. I
1: mean, because when you do look and research this topic about sequels that recast main characters, this is someone. It does come up. Yeah. That does come up. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, for this movie, did you see Charlie's Angels Full Throttle in theaters? Oh,
1: you know it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember there being a
0: lot of people there, but I definitely <laughs> saw it. Well, it did do well at the box office, I mean, if we want to jump right into the uh, box office information of this film. Yeah, let's uh, it, do it. it. was number one. It came out June twenty seventh, 2003. On that weekend, it made $37.6 million. So, it was a big step down, I believe, from... The first Charlie's Angels? But it made a lot of money internationally. It ended up with $258 million total. But it was still kind of considered a failure. Because I don't know, Like, was there talk of a third movie? Because I know that you wish there was, but...
1: Yeah, and that's a callback to our pilot episode when we're talking about the question, a movie that you wish there was a sequel to, a proper sequel. And this is that film for me because i loved it so much i had such a good time with these three because you can feel the bond between them and like sort of that magic and yeah like i thought it did well well enough to deserve like at least a trilogy because you know there's something about sequels that when it doesn't have a third it just feels like come on like we have to even this out right like we want a trilogy like it just it can't end with this one i'm really disappointed I did read that somewhere, that
0: there was a planned third and fourth part, and Uh, they just scrapped it. So, oh, just to go back for a second, that June 27th date, just to see what it opened with, uh, it beat out 28 days later, because that also opened that day. And also, strangely, that was the day of the first premiere of The Room, the Tommy Wiseau cult classic film. It opened in L.A. in two theaters on that day.
1: Poor Tommy didn't stand a chance. <laughs> yes,
0: in terms of cast and crew, I mean, there's so many people in this movie. Oh, I'm so just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna leave that to the summary. We can touch on that as we're hitting people. But for the crew, so the director is Mick G who I really thought was more prominent than he actually was. Most of his career is music videos in the 90s. He did, uh, I think, Corn and The Offspring videos, among many others. But after the two Charlie's Angels movies, I mean, there was Terminator Salvation, which bombed. And then also, I know he did the Babysitter movies that I think you're a fan of as well. Yeah, I actually do like them. But I think at the time, I kind of wasn't paying too much attention to the Charlie's Angels movies. I only went back, or I only watched them... Later, And I'm a big fan of the first one. I didn't care for the second one as much when I first saw it. This new viewing, I enjoyed it more. But I remember at the time, I kind of dismissed them because I saw an interview with Mick G and he comes across as like the biggest douchey bro that a director <laughs> could be. <laughs> I don't think there's any controversy that's tied to him or anything. He just came across like, ugh, you are not someone that I want to have a conversation with.
1: I feel like that's what a lot of this film gets heat from. Not necessarily mm-hmm. the only thing, but a lot of people say that same thing. Is they're like, oh, Mick Like when you type in some research on Mick a lot of articles talk about wanting to like punch him in the face and all this stuff. So yeah,
0: he doesn't come. It's he's kind of in that same boat. I feel Brett Ratner had that going for him at the time too. Mm-hmm. That after the Rush Hour movies, like if you'd see him, he kind of came across like, ugh, you're not someone I care about. I do think looking back now in retrospect, this movie reminds me most of Torque. I was just races. gonna say that Joe's uh sung hero. So Torque, for those that don't know, is a Joseph Kahn movie and he kind of went all out into making this very over-the-top sort of parody of car racing movies. But it, that comes out a year after Charlie James' was Full Throttle. Like, if if I've had to pick one film to represent what 21st century cinema is, it's still Torque. I think Torque <laughs> is all of the excess of mainstream filmmaking in one movie. But this really feels like it, too. Like, this is going, like, so over-the-top. But Camp yeah, is the camp. first
1: word that I think of.
0: yeah. That it's very like tongue in cheek. Can I
1: give you my two cents on it? Because I have a little bit more feedback down the road when we start talking about the commentary. But I listened to the McGee commentary on the DVD for this because I wanted to get a few little insights. And I think my biggest takeaway from it was I think McGee's biggest saving grace, regardless of his actual personality and demeanor, is that Drew Barrymore was an executive producer on this Mm. and he was really like close. With her, And so it sounds like, throughout the commentary, that she had a lot of creative control and a lot of feedback and input, therefore maybe helping tone down some of the douchiness, because <laughs> while there is the male gaze, there is also a lot of the female gaze, or gaze for the gaze, if you want, yes. <laughs> because... You know, they balance it out really well with it's not yeah. just all these gratuitous, sexy shots of all the women and they all look so great. I mean, yes, there's a lot of that, but we do get a decent amount, too, of like the male side of it, too.
0: Yeah. Uh, just to quick go through the rest of the crew, the writers, there were three writers, uh, Cormac and Marianne Wiberly, who are best known also for doing the National Treasure movies, and then John August, who did go, and then a whole bunch of Tim Burton films, the cinematographer, Russell Carpenter, uh, I love this. He gets his start doing horror stuff like Critters 2, Lawnmower Man, and Pet Cemetery 2. And then just manages to hook up with John Cameron with, I believe, True Lies was their first. And then he's gone on from there. He did Titanic. He did Avatar. So, man, starting from the little tiny horror movies to the big time. Composer Edward Shermer composed some films with connections that we've talked about here with Cruel Intentions. Miscongeniality with Sandra Bullock and Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight with my favorite Billy Zane. And then also, I guess just for cast to touch on John Forsyth, who did the voice of Charlie. This was his last movie role before he retired. But there was a lot of behind the scenes issues. I don't know, did you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, uh, to be honest, there's still not a lot of information out there. It's just one of those things, like, I had no idea that there was an issue with Bill Murray from the first one. Mm-hmm. And until now, when I was researching, you know, until later, I think way later, people had started to kind of come out and say, like, yeah, Bill Murray, he was a huge pain in the ass. Then it was more like, oh, no, it wasn't Bill Murray. It was Lucy Liu. And it wasn't Lucy Liu. It was McGee. So it's still a little unclear. But from what I could gather in doing my research, it does sound like because there are recent Interviews now online that you can find on YouTube. Thank you, the Drew Barrymore show um (laughs) that is currently airing, where she does discuss. Okay, so Drew Barrymore is very like uh she's very neutral on the whole situation. So she started to talk about it and she was discussing the Lucy Lou Bill Murray, I don't know if you want to call it feud, but dispute. And she basically just describes it as such. He just came in one day in a bad mood and it's hard to work with actors when they're like that and we did the best we could under the circumstances so i was like that is great but like that doesn't really give you any information and she does talk about how like Lucy Liu in some press circuit was recently opening up about like what had happened on set and what went down so i went online to just try to find out what exactly did happen with Lucy Liu because I'm dying to know. What I just pulled was from what Lucy Liu said in recent interviews, which was that essentially she came in, like Drew was saying, he was in a bad mood. He refused to do like blocking or run throughs, I think, with them. And that apparently at some point he had essentially just told Lucy Liu that she can't act, which (laughs) really pissed her off. And she... She just said, you know, she just stood up for herself and she was like, that's unacceptable. I'm not going to, I'm not going to work with someone and let them talk to me like that. And so I gather like that's the most we're going to get out of it. And you have to kind of piece it together and decide like who's at fault and what happened. Mm -hmm. The other, Interesting piece that I, I came across. I found an article on Looper.com, why Bill Murray didn't return for Charlie's Angel's Full Throttle. Something that was reported by Entertainment Weekly. I was talking about Mick and Bill Murray and how apparently they had gotten into it at some point too. And that Bill Murray headbutted Mick G? <laughs> like that, that is what they're saying. And oh. in fact, there's even apparently a quote from Murray Saying Murray doubled down on his McGee related vitriol, continuing, I don't know why he made that story up. He has a very active imagination. He deserves to die. And then <laughs> even said, He should be pierced with a lance, not headbutted. And then this is vaguely, you know, addresses Lou rumors as well and said, Look, when I dismiss you completely, if you are nonprofessional working with me, when our relationship is professional and you're not getting that done, forget it. So I don't know, take what you will, but it makes sense that he's not back. And I don't know, do. You, feel it added or took away from this variation of Charlie's Angels at all, like not having him in the film?
0: I don't think so. I think Bernie Mac is fine. I I think I prefer Bill Murray's role in the first one, but I don't think Bernie Mac is dragging the film down at all or anything.
1: No. And strangely enough, this is another one where even though they're all the same people, It feels like, to me, two different stylistic movies. Like, there's the first one, which is campy, but is a little bit more serious and Mm. less colorful and bright. Where this one's pretty, like, camp over the top, going, quote-unquote, full throttle, the name of the film, (laughs) and, like, really punching it up. And so, I don't know. I mean, I just—I feel like even having Murray out of it, it changes the style But yeah, that's kind of all I had on that. But, oh, I did want to add one more interesting tidbit that I found out actually today. There are six episodes of a web series that was released a few weeks before Full Throttle was released. And it's animated, and it's about how Alex, Dylan, and Natalie got to Mongolia, which is the opening of the film. And it's the strangest thing I've watched because they're each segment is two to three minutes online. You can find them all on YouTube. And it's, like I said, it's animated. The only actual dialogue that's in it is John Forsyth's voice talking to the angels and setting it up. And then there's like written script so you can read like where they're going and what's happening and what the episode's called. And then the entire episode plays out in this animated footage, but like, They don't say anything. They just fight and, like, run and do all these things. So don't need to get them
0: for the voices.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, kind of. And so it it was interesting because it was, like, it literally leads up to, like, that last episode where they end up in, you know, the mountains of Mongolia and, like, they're in those outfits. And they tag team and you see, like, Alex getting in the box and Natalie, like, winking (laughs) as Dylan walks up to the
0: front door and goes into the bar. But anyway. Well, anyway. Before we get into the summary, let's see what our pal Leonard Moulton had to say about oh, this. No. Well, he gave it two and a half stars wow. and says, The girls are back in action, trying to track down a pair of information laden rings that could spell disaster in the wrong hands. So much for story. <laughs> the rest of the movie consists of high decibel but fragmented sequences of video game style action, music, and eye candy with a couple of extra plot threads, one involving an angel gone bad. Much ado about much ado, minus the freshness and martial arts fun that made the first film entertaining. Many star cameos dot the already busy landscape. So, I guess that's a middle of the road for. Yeah,
1: I was just going to say, so where are we landing with that? Because I didn't, I'm not getting a good read. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to preface by saying that this was an incredibly hard summary for me to put together, mostly because I really like this film, but this is a movie that has a lot happening. But nothing really at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of visuals, there's a lot of cameos, a lot of bright colors, a lot of fun music, and yet the plot is very thin. So remind me at the end because there is a great quote. In fact, you know what? I should I should just throw it in now because okay. I, I think it's great. Um McGee in his commentary said that Drew and he had a great philosophy that people are always making films that contemplate the human condition. There's an even greater contribution when you make a film that makes you forget the human condition. (laughs) And so essentially that was his way of saying like, we had more fun trying to find ways to make people forget how heavy life is and to just make people laugh and have a good time. So I think that was like a great quote for the overall style of this movie. All right. So when the film opens, we open with that trademark Columbia logo of a woman holding a torch. And we immediately zoom in on the torch, which crossfades into this fire burning in a chaotic Mongolian bar. And two men drop a small wooden box into a pit, which then reveals to be Alex inside, who slinks out. She witnesses a blindfolded man getting beaten over the head in a nearby room. and then cuts to the above scene, where Dylan, a.k.a. Drew Barrymore is shooting bar dice in a drinking contest, and I do appreciate this was a callback. They said Drew Barrymore and McGee are huge Raiders of the Lost Ark fans.
0: That's what so, I was wondering.
1: I supposedly like, seems Karen Allen, and so she ends up stealing a set of keys and pushes her way out of the rowdy crowd. Simultaneously, the front door of the bar is kicked open, and the angelic Cameron Diaz, a.k.a. <laughs> Natalie, dressed in all white fur and holding... I love this detail, too. I had to zoom in. A Fromer's Mongolia book asks... <laughs> This is hostile, yeah. And there's a complete record scratch, and the entire bar then cheers after Natalie eyes a mechanical yak, and Natalie mounts it as the song Wild Thing by Tone Luck plays. With Natalie distracting everyone, we cut back to the blindfolded man. He's being filmed as our antagonists remove a metal ring from his finger. Alex intercepts, takes some of the Mongolians out, in her signature Matrix style kung fu. And she quickly introduces herself to Ray Carter, who is the director of U.S. Marshals. And he's also played by Robert Patrick. Yeah. I do appreciate this line. He says, how many men do you... She's like, hi, I'm Alex. I'm here to rescue you. And he says, how many men do you have with you? And she said, I have two girlfriends at the bar. (laughs) It's just like (laughs) so perfect. Just ridiculous. But he ends up, you know, grimacing and tells her that his ribs are broken. Alex needs help getting him out of there. So Dylan assists Alex and Ray in trying to escape but before they can clear the exit they're caught so this prompts the angels to get in their traditional pose like strike a pose like they all kind of do these flips and then end up standing in this like trio where they're all screaming and you think there's going to be this big fight and blow out on the bar but i actually really love this too like instead of it being like the traditional like fight scene that you would expect Instead, the whole bar just stares at them blankly and, like, parts. And this guy steps out with his giant, like, machine gun and just starts open firing. And they're like, fuck. And so... That's a little also a bit like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Our foursome flee the scene because they're not dummies and they end up stealing a nearby truck. And I will say, Joe, this is probably the hardest part for me to watch. Mostly just because it's the most unbelievable thing, in my opinion. <laughs> to have happened i know we're just spending all belief in this this whole entire movie but it, it just looks so cheesy and cgi to me i just have a hard time with it but when they're fleeing with the truck they're shot at by a bazooka which fine forces them off the road but when they're falling to their doom natalie fires up a helicopter which is just magically in the back of this truck and it ends up getting kind of like knocked upright she starts it and basically, saves them. Everybody gets onto the wing of the plane and into the cockpit, and then they're off. And then we cut instead, you're kind of expecting it to like open like it traditionally does with like the main Charlie's Angels theme. But no, we instead cut to the incredibly sexy Randy Emmers. Well, he's played by Rodrigo Santoro, and I don't know if you recognize him. He was Carl in Love Actually. He plays Laura Linney's love interest. Oh, he's yeah. like the quiet guy. Sure. That she thinks is really attractive. Yeah,
0: at the office.
1: But um, I'm told that apparently, especially at this time, he was known as the Brazilian Brad Pitt. Oh. That apparently he was like this big heartthrob in Brazil and like could barely leave his house. So... Oh, wow. But yeah, he answers. So he's standing shirtless near a fireplace. And it's presumed that, oh, this is our antagonist, our main antagonist, Mm -hmm. right? But instead, he receives a call and hands it over to a mysterious figure. And the Mongolian general, who is apparently played by Shen Yun, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but the reason I'm giving him a shout out is because apparently he was the martial arts coordinator for the entire film. So, and he's also the guy in the opening. He's like lighting his... Cigar or something with a giant torch. So, shout out to him. So, this general is telling this mysterious figure that we haven't seen yet about his run in with the angels, and he confirms that he still has the marshal's ring. And then there's a quick pan revealing a woman wearing a fur coat, gripping a golden gun, and speaking in this terrible Mongolian dub. I don't know how you feel. Actually, it wasn't (laughs) Mongolian. I think it was Cantonese, to be honest. Um. And subtitles are revealing that she tells the general to go to plan B. Cue that old familiar voiceover from John Forsyth, the original Charlie from Charlie's Angels, the TV show, saying, once upon a time, there were three very different little girls, and then we get a series of great flashbacks. The first one's featuring Natalie as a high school mascot, we get Alex doing gymnastics, and Dylan dressed in David Bowie Aladdin Sane drag, body slamming a professional wrestler, but then the next sequence that we get after the first three is there's alex winning a chess match against a small child dylan monster truck racing and then natalie birthing a cow
0: so it's just ridiculous (laughs) what i thought was interesting dylan's character here in both of these how she goes from a professional wrestler to a monster truck racer that's an actual person her name's medusa she's mostly known by but she was in wwf for a while as alundra blaze after her wrestling career, she became a champion monster truck driver. I just like that because she's one of my favorite wrestlers.
1: So. Um, and then after those montages, we essentially just get a bunch of little vignettes and shots of the girls in action, which are fantastic. I think like Alex is in a blonde wig, riding a horse down the middle of the street, lassos someone, <laughs> and etc. Pretty great. So the film moves away immediately from its bright color palette and shifts to this Twilight-esque blue tone, which that's what I call it because it looks like (laughs) Twilight. The first film of an airplane hangar. And there's two SUVs with armed guards that pull up. And the title card reads, William Rose Bailey, Department of Justice. So I didn't know for years that this was Bruce Willis. I mean, now I know it is. So it's unrecognizable Bruce Willis boarding a plane. The hangar goes quiet. William steps out to investigate, finds everyone dead. Our protagonist with the golden gun appears behind him in a ski mask and holds a gun, a gold gun to his head. The figure removes a ring from his finger, pulls the trigger, and the shot from the gun cuts to MC Hammer's Hammer Time music video. Which we then get a fantastic dance sequence from the girls and learn that Natalie and Pete, a.k.a. Luke Wilson, who, he's my MVP of the film. I mean, not MVP, but I always really liked his character, even though he's so minor. There's something incredibly charming about Luke Wilson in these films. So yeah, we established that Natalie and Peta moved in together, and while they're helping them move in, uh, we get this incredibly awkward moment where we're familiarized with Alex's beau Jason, played by Matt LeBlanc, who pretends to jump her from behind, but thankfully she full-front flips him because she's like, not in my house. And what I call awkward is just because even, again, McGee in the commentary said he thought they were going to get a A lot of shit for this at the time is coming off racist because he does this like terrible Asian accent but he basically just says so you thought you could escape my grasp implying that he's like one of the Mongolians and Mm. that's why she flips him so yeah I think now if this movie came out today people would probably be more willing to like call them out on it and I don't know how you feel about the Jason character, but since we were just talking about Pete's character, Jason's not my favorite. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's just the way Matt LeBlanc is playing it. It kind of reminds me of his character from Episodes, which is just like kind of this narcissistic kind of asshole actor. I don't know. He's just, I gotta admit, like he's not my favorite. But anyway, so we see him again. He's brought in from the first one. And immediately the girls are called to the office where we meet our new Bosley, played by Bernie Mac. And we get a brief Murray reference in the line, I see my brother hasn't checked the books in a while. So that's kind of like their throwaway until later when we see there's an actual picture frame yeah. in you know Bosley's mom's house. But Charlie phones in and we're introduced to Roger Wixon, the director of the FBI, aka Robert Forster. Yeah. And in fact, again, McGee said he had a lot of love for him after seeing him in Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. And so yeah. we got Wixon, and he explains that the Witness Protection Program has a top secret program called Halo, which is a program that has an encrypted list of everyone who's protected. It can only be accessed when the two titanium rings the data is stored on are brought together. And he then reveals one of the rings was the ring stolen off of Ray Carter, and the other was taken off William Rose, which we just saw in the hangar. So, Wixson hires the angels to retrieve both rings to get to the bottom of this mystery. So, the girls decide to look into this homicide of Alan Caulfield, one of the protected witnesses on Halo's list, and they camp it up in their own version of a CSI episode, (laughs) introducing that the killer is a surfer with a bum knee. Essentially, that's my summary of it, but... There are very specific details
0: yeah. that they come up with. and It is peak ridiculousness of just going all in on the parody of these kind of police procedural shows. And it does include my favorite cameo of this entire movie because it's so out of left field and doesn't make any sense. As the trio is entering the house, in the far background, you can maybe make out Melissa McCarthy, of all people, just standing around. And we never go back to her, except in the very end credits where they do something with her and Bernie Mac, is it? Yeah. That's the only reason you know, like, oh, she was here? Because this wasn't a point after Bridesmaids when people knew who she was. At this point, she's just doing Gilmore Girls, really. And
1: this is also another cameo of Andrew Wilson, who's the oldest Wilson brother. Hmm. He plays the douchebag cop when they get to the house, and he's like, freeze, and kind of bullshitting with the angels as they're investigating. Um, Yeah, while they're doing their CSI thing, they, like I said, deduce that the killer is a surfer with a bum knee. So the trio then make a pit stop at Alex's house to pick up surfboards so they can move on to their next location. And they end up running into Alex's dad, who we learned is played by John Cleese. And there's a quick gag about how the girls know Alex before they hit the beach. And Alex and Dylan do a stakeout from the Hot Dog on a Stick booth, which is a real booth out in California, Santa Monica Pier. Or Venice. I'm trying to remember which one. I think it's Santa Monica. Have you been Uh, there? I have. And in fact, that was why I went. Because I remember watching... (laughs) This came out a long time before I moved to LA. And I remember I was... On the beach in Santa Monica and I was like, holy shit, it's the hot dog on a stick. Because they have those very specific outfits with the bright colors that they're wearing in the thing. So yes, they're at the hot dog on a stick booth while Natalie waxes her board. And this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie and musical cues. Surfer Girl by the Beach Boys plays while Natalie's approached by Madison Lee, aka Demi Moore, in her tiny, tiny little black bikini. And if you haven't figured it out by now natalie's in a white bikini and madison's in a black one evil and light anyway but madison i do love that madison tells natalie that she recognizes her from the newsletter (laughs) as if there is one like an angel newsletter before natalie's called away to check out lone surfer slash sexy randy emmers who's out there in the water and then there's this great gratuitous slow-mo shot of madison running on the beach before getting into a red ferrari and peeling out and another great tidbit from McGee that i appreciated is he said as if this woman would be jogging down the beach get into a fer- uh, an unlocked red ferrari on the beach with no keys because she's just in her bikini so she's it's like <laughs> where are the keys they're just sitting in the car like give me a break and just drives off like how fantastic right so um natalie's honing in on emmer's But while she's doing that, Alex asks Dylan who she thinks will leave their group first. And this ends up striking a nerve with Dylan, prompting a montage of Angel replacements. The first is of Eve replacing Natalie, and then the Olsen twins inevitably replacing both Alex and Eve. So it's just a very old Dylan sitting between the Olsen twins. And when I tell you that I nearly screamed in the theaters when (laughs) the scene came up, because there was no hint or reference or even thought, that the Olsen twins were going to be in Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. And this was definitely in my prime callback to a previous episode where I was watching all of their direct-to-DVD vacation films. And this was at the height of their popularity. And then boom, like there they are in Full Throttle. Like I nearly passed out. So Natalie catches up to Emmers who changes outside his car. And this is one of those gratuitous female shots that we're talking about that I love where Alex and Natalie are under, I'm sorry, Dylan and Alex are underneath the car as Emers is changing. And he's got his towel wrapped around his waist oh, yeah. and he's like pulling his swimsuit down. And I love like Dylan like looks up as he's like pulling it down. It's fantastic. There is a Demi Moore-esque scene 2 before this where he's running out of the water and everything's jiggling and looking beautiful as he flips his hair back it's fantastic but Natalie ends up distracting him long enough for Dylan and Alex to swipe his wallet and this is another scene that always like struck me when I watched it is it happens so fast that they end up taking all his stuff and they're underneath his car, but he gets in and then immediately starts backing up. And you're like, holy shit, he just ran them over. Because it's like, <laughs> there is like little to no time for them to get out from underneath the car and be safe. And then you see the car drive off and they're nowhere to be seen in the movie magic. You know, Natalie moves her surfboard and they're standing behind her. So after they pickpocket him, they realize that his next target is Leo, a rider in a motocross race called the Colbo. So the girls show up to the race and enter and they end up tailing Emmers and notice another racer with a lion on his helmet deducing that it's Leo and they try to oh. protect him. So before Emmers can take Leo out, a mysterious rider in black intervenes and knifes Emmers in the chest, not before ripping out a chunk of Dylan's hair, which should oh. easily clue you in to who that is, like immediately. The rider crashes and it's revealed to be Crispin Glover, the thin man from the first film. Everyone's got this what the fuck moment like didn't he die but he ends up running away and then we get the second what the fuck moment where Leo aka Max Petroni removes his helmet and reveals that he's just a teenager aka my boo Shia LaBeouf. (laughs) In Emmer's pocket the girls pull out three pictures and they find one of Caulfield, one of Max and one of Dylan. And they immediately have questions. So back at the agency, Dylan explains that she too is part of the Witness Protection Program and that long ago she used to be Helen Zass. And she explains that she dated Seamus O'Grady played by Justin Thoreau, who, Joe, you said is your favorite character in this film, right?
0: I, when I first saw this, I didn't know who he was. It didn't stick. I became a big fan of his with the HBO show, The Leftovers. And now, like, I recognize him and things. So going back to this is like, whoa, young Justin <laughs> Thoreau just totally ripped with an Irish accent. So, yeah, seeing him and seeing him kind of go crazy with this role was probably my favorite part of, like, going back to rewatch this.
1: But anyway, we cut back to, you know, Helen Zoss, Dylan explaining that she dated Seamus, Justin Thoreau from the Irish Mob, who used to drive her around listening to metal and Frenching like no one's business. And they're singing along to, what is it, Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi, which McGee full-on admits, I know that's not metal, but that's what Drew Barrymore really wanted. So anyway, Dylan witnesses Seamus murder someone, so she testified and put him away And then we immediately realize Max reveals that the O'Grady's also killed his parents, and that's why he's in the protected custody. So we get a few more cracks, no pun intended, about Dylan's name, being Helen Zass, an Australian, and driving an Aston Martin, until the girls discuss the Thin Man. And they deduce that he must have been trying to protect Max. Hmm. They just don't know why. So while Max is being relocated to Bosley's mom's house in Compton... The girls head to a monastery and meet with Mother Superior, played by Carrie Fisher, to learn more about the thin man's past. And we get these, you know, great scenes. There's a big, great homage to Blues Brothers with Carrie Fisher, where they're like inching forward on their desks. I also loved that scene. I've always laughed every single time where it pans the monastery, and there's the little boys at the end of the steps, and they're like, look at those knockers as they're looking <laughs> looking at like a nudie magazine. And in fact, McGee said they are trying so hard, they just couldn't get a copy of it the day of filming, but they really wanted to get an issue of the Drew Barrymore Playboy cover so they could hold that up while they are looking at it. Because, fun fact, he said, I may be going to hell for this, but those shots in that scene is shot entirely at the Playboy mansion. Oh, yeah, on location. So it's fantastic that it's doubling as like a monastery. But yes, and I also do appreciate the Thornbirds reference, too. I think that was pretty fun when there's that like really sexy young priest that walks by, and Dylan kind of like, Looks at him and there's that like boing noise and, and Alex just says to her Thornbirds. I don't know if you get that reference. I do I, not get that reference. It's I think it was is either a t- made for TV movie or just a movie where someone's having conflicted feelings towards like a young priest oh. or vice versa, but. Yes, it's a good callback. So they end up finding Emmer's car and trace it back to the docks of San Pedro with a little help from some bird poop. And we cut to then a proper introduction of Seamus in the film's homage to Cape Fear, essentially, because it's. That music, right? It's that same oh, score. Yeah. Da, yeah. Da, da, da. Anyway, as he's, like, doing pull-ups, we see the ripped Seamus get released from prison, our mysterious villain with that gold guns again, because they're still keeping it a secret at this point, uh, hands him the halo rings, and promises that Helen and friends will come looking for them, and that they do. In their best steel mill flash dance homage, the girls stake out at the San Pedro docks and find out that it's the recent location of the O'Grady mob. So later that night, they pose as Pussycat Dolls dancers in a fabulous burlesque montage that inevitably helps them break into the O'Grady storage facility when everyone's cleared out. And just big shout out, Like I remember being incredibly infatuated by the Pussycat Dolls scene because this was before they were a group, like a singing group. This was just like a legitimate burlesque show performance Mm. that was, I think, exclusive to california and i remember wanting to go so bad because they would have like female celebrities come in and out and like interact so like christina aguilera would be sort of involved at some point and sing and dance and pink i think like just miscellaneous carmen electro was another one that was in it a lot so shout out to them because i do think this is like a scene from that era that will forever like kind of remind me of the early 2000s but they do end up doing their sexy dances They get all the stuff that they need to break in after everyone's cleared out, and they successfully find the rings, pop a bottle of champagne, but before they can celebrate, shirtless, of course, because he's got to be shirtless, Seamus appears, scaring the shit out of Dylan, and then there's this extensive fight scene between the dock workers and the girls, accompanied by
0: Prodigy's Firestarter. I really appreciated that. It's been a long time since I heard some Prodigy, so... Well,
1: and they do use a Prodigy song in the first one, too, don't they? Is it Smack My Bitch Up? I think they oh, use Smack right. My yeah. Bitch Up when they're fighting in the alleyway. They have some love for Prodigy, but also this music coordinator or supervisor was fantastic. I've always loved this soundtrack. So it leads to an explosive finale outside, like literally explosive finale, because this is another fun fact. There's a scene where they like spray gas all over the parking lot and then they Dylan throws her lighter and it ignites. And so it becomes like a flamethrower. They said that was actually Lucy Lou. With oh, the, with the flamethrower, like, doing it. They were like, yeah, that wasn't a double. That was her actually going for it. So even more of a reason I have to say, like, shout out to all of these women because they're doing all their own shit. So three managed to escape. But um, shell-shocked, you know, we get this next scene where Dylan decides to leave the group. So while she's making her exit, we get a few lighter scenes of Natalie attending Pete's high school reunion. And then this is, like, by far top ten favorite scenes. The dance sequence to Donna Summer's last dance with
0: Natalie. It is, it is fantastic. Yeah, this it, whole, the high school reunion, I really liked a lot.
1: Just so over the top. Even the little details of like when the women's restrooms close and she goes into the men's restroom. Again, they said it was it was all Cameron Diaz like propping herself up with those heels on oh, yeah. in the stall. Like there was nothing holding her in place. She just did it. And then there's also that scene where she like sits on the toilet and you just get the shot of her feet and the little Spider-Man ruse come down. <laughs> yeah. Like I absolutely just love it. I love it. So yeah, it's kind of like its own rival to the Baby Got Back scene, I think from the first Charlie's Angels when they're at Soul Train. And then we also get a scene of Jason trying to, uh, this is where Jason's convincing Alex's dad basically that she's a hooker because you know he's saying oh she's not actually a neurosurgeon you know she's working after hours and she puts in the long hours etc but i did appreciate i had i wrote down this one line um when alex returns and he basically is like, oh, don't worry, I told your dad everything. And she says, Natalie, Dylan and I are a team, and we just took on 12 sailors. You can't even imagine the positions we get ourselves into. Daddy, I wish you could watch us work, where you'd be so proud. You know what? I'm going to take a shower because I can, I'm can. i covered in, well, you can only imagine what. So when I come back, I'm going to give you a full blow by blow. And he's just like, there it's because there's this running joke where calls her ferret but his face he doesn't say anything in this whole entire sequence but like it's just too good like that whole scene so the next morning, we're cutting back to Alex, Natalie, and Bosley arriving at the agency, and they find a note that Dylan left for the three of them, along with a box of personal items, basically letting them know, like, oh, she's serious, because she would have never gave this shit up if she wasn't really going to leave. So as they lament, they wrap up their unfinished business with Wixon by returning the rings to Ray Carter, and on his way out, Bosley notices a set of keys, which this is the most kind of random scene when he's like, hey, you forgot your keys. Tosses them to Ray, who then catches them and Ray tells them, oh, these aren't mine and tosses them back to Bosley, mm-hmm. which always just made me wonder, like, well, whose keys are they? But <laughs> doesn't matter. And the girls are instantly reminded of when Ray was bitching about his cracked ribs from the beginning of the movie. Because if we remember the callback, he's like, my ribs, I cracked my ribs. Mm. So they obviously are on him because they realize if someone still had cracked ribs, they wouldn't be able to reach those keys like he did. And so they decide to follow him in disguises, of course. So Natalie's following him by car while Alex is lugging along his car, which again, fun fact, apparently they filmed all that with basically Lucy Liu on the luge on a treadmill to make it appear like she was on the road. Huh. Because if you think about it, like, how the fuck did they film it? Because it looks like it's moving. Yeah. But, like, they wouldn't have her laying on that and just drive with her (laughs) and film her, you know? That'd be pretty terrifying. So, yeah. She's lugeing alongside. She ends up tapping into the phone line of the car because this is still a time where cars have phones apparently <laughs> um and the girls here a one-sided conversation with our golden gun antagonist here they are again confirming his involvement with the halo case so it's revealed that ray's working with miscellaneous buyers to purchase the list of names from the halo project and ray tells potential buyers to follow the stars beyond the galaxy take short to hope stop on a stair and find a man with a map just keep that in mind everyone So, meanwhile, Dylan enters the shithole bar in Mexico. We get a great shot of Sleepwalker by Santo and Johnny playing on the jukebox while she's slapped on the ass by a drunk. But she walks right by him, defeated. And at the bar, there's a cameo from original angel Kelly Garrett, played by Jacqueline Smith. And Kelly ends up telling Dylan, angels are like diamonds. They can't be made. You have to find them. Each one is unique. So this eventually just convinces Dylan to change her mind and return home. Not before getting another slap on the ass, smiling, and then sending her aggressor directly into the jukebox.
0: Oh, she's back. She's back, baby. Got, got maybe two scenes of her leaving, but... <laughs> yeah, I drove all the way to Mexico, and I should drive to drive all the way back.
1: So Alex and Natalie follow Ray to the Griffith Observatory... And witness him get shot in cold blood. His killer is then finally revealed to be Madison in a great reveal. She's on this, like, revolving, I don't know, telescope? Is that what it is? Yeah. And she greets the girls, who basically call her out. Dylan appears behind her, tries to jump Madison, but she outsmarts her and ends up essentially just shooting all three angels in the chest, knocking them over the side of a building. Oh, no. So... I remember seeing this and being like, damn, like I knew that they weren't dead, but I was like, they're still falling over the side of a building. They must have died from the impact of falling over the edge, but it is what it is. So it's implied that they're dead Hmm. because the film fades to black before fading back in on a ringing phone at the agency. And there we get Madison answering and antagonizing Charlie, essentially telling him that she was never good she was great. Oh, followed by her just blowing the speaker completely away before exiting. So, we cut then back to the observatory. The angels reveal Kevlar vests underneath their tops that they survived, and Natalie figures out that Ray's riddle was actually a reference to the star names on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So, our trio develop a plan. Mm. It's a great montage of miscellaneous crime families, including the O'Grady's. Do you sorry? Do you Go remember on. the song that's playing here? Yes. So I, I put that in actually. So oh, yeah, okay. I see. It's yeah. a it's a montage scored by Edwin Collins,
0: A Girl Like You. I have had this song stuck in my head for like two weeks. Oh,
1: really? Because <laughs> yeah, we give no. ourselves
0: between episodes, we have usually like a two-week break, and I cannot get the song out of my head.
1: It's fantastic. And in fact, this I credit this movie for introducing me to the song because. I remember really liking it, but not knowing who sang it. And then, like, I bought the soundtrack, and I remember being like, oh my god, I could listen to this all day, every day. Oh, yeah. So, yes, the miscellaneous crime families, including the O'Grady's, follow Ray's clues, and buying into Madison's plan. And while they're kind of going from clue to clue, this is one of my last favorite scenes of the entire movie. It's the shot of Demi Moore watching all this going down in her lingerie, a giant fur coat, and she yells, Yahtzee! <laughs> oh, it's so good. Oh, man. And she's got this long, like, elongated plastic fingernail on her pinky <laughs> finger. And McGee said that they, like, specifically brought that in from her house in where, oh, where she's living. Yes, yeah, so that's a personal item. And so I just, it's the weirdest stylistic choice in this entire movie. And yet I absolutely love it. I think it's like the most iconic moment for her in this movie. And then probably the red Ferrari bikini on the beach thing. But yeah, I had an ex-boyfriend who watched this and like hated the movie, but he said this was his favorite scene in the entire (laughs) film because it was just so over the top. I'm surprised there aren't big shout out to, I'm surprised there aren't more um, drag Queens out there doing a parody of this because it could easily parody it with the long hair and everything. Maybe I need to do it, Joe. Maybe that's... Yes, that's... Yes. For my 40th birthday, when I rent out a roller (laughs) rink, I'll just go to the bathroom quick and come back out with a giant fur coat on, roller skates and lingerie. Singing, (laughs) yes! (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Perfect. Two, and then we'll play. I'll sync it to a girl like you playing on the overhead speakers. My parents will love it. Um, Anyway, so there's also this really great awkward shot of Seamus... When he's getting on an el- on the elevator, he, like, looks back and does a double take at the bellhop's ass before
0: he gets into the elevator, before it closed, the door's closed. Did you notice that? I didn't, like, because they explain it later, so I had to go back. I was like, oh, did I miss something? Like, oh. Yeah, and
1: it's strange. It's kind of like a blink and you'll miss it because you're kind of like, man, what's going on? Like, he's like, damn, that's a fat ass. But, like, then later it comes out. Yeah. You'll You'll see why he's looking at it. Essentially, this whole montage leads to each crime family meeting together on the rooftop, to which they think they're meeting with Madison, but they end up getting busted by the FBI instead, Um, and Wixon appears and busts all of them. And then on the rooftop across the street, we learn that the angels figured out Madison's plan and set her up to fail, basically um, appearing and disarming Madison, but she quickly reveals Plan B again, because she's all about her Plan B, and reveals explosives that she set up all around the rooftop to blow them away. Hmm. So before she can do any of that, they're interrupted by Seamus, who then screams the line i'd recognize that arse anywhere you piece of shite (laughs) in reference to dylan and that is our callback to why he was checking out the ass because apparently he he knows helen's ass very well so um alex takes on the grady goons Natalie fights with Madison while Dylan and Seamus start to go at it. Um, and at some point, the thin man appears out of nowhere, saves Dylan from Seamus, and is like about to speak because him and Dylan kiss, which is weird, right? Yeah, they have their
0: they have their uh connection moment.
1: Yeah, and they also have this like moment where they rip each other's hair out and kind of are like <laughs> sexy about it. Um until Seamus reappears, stabs him through the chest and throws him over the side of the building. Oh. And eventually the O'Grady's and Seamus end up getting killed. But I found it interesting that apparently in the theatrical cut, they skim it down. So like the thin man goes over the edge and is on the ground and he's got that big spike sticking through his chest. Yeah. And then when Seamus is thrown over, he actually lands. uh, I think he lands on the spike and it's like more gratuitous and violent. And they Mm. cut it because, again, they're trying to avoid, like, an R rating because they right. wanted this to be a family film. But there's little cuts throughout that that McGee points out. Like, that first Seamus-Dylan fight back at the docks, like, he cold clocks her in the mouth and she spits out blood. Like, stuff like that. They said so they really tamed down to get the PG-13 rating. Mm. So they take everyone out, and then it leaves the three to face off with Madison again. But always the fashion icon, Madison reveals as she jumps off the building that her top also doubles as a wingsuit <laughs> and so she manages to fly down Hollywood Boulevard she blows the rooftop but of course our girls are ahead of them ahead of the game and they grab onto some string lights and swing to safety down Hollywood Boulevard after her and they engage in an elaborate car chase fight which was pretty brutal actually when they're on that car and they're like punching her like repeatedly right <laughs> next to each other like it was pretty great Dylan and Alex are thrown from the car, implying that they're dead again, because each one goes flying in a different direction, and they crash through some glass. And it's a pretty gnarly scene where they, like, get thrown to the ground, and then their eyes are, like, wide open, and they just stare blankly. And it's, like, kind of disturbing, because you're like, whoa, if they weren't dead, they are now, but again, implying. While Madison ends up, you know, flipping the car and sending her and Natalie into a nearby theater— Madison overpowers Natalie in the theater, thinking she has the upper hand until Alex and Dylan arrive, take out Madison in one final confrontation, and then it's over. So we think. to Celebrate, the girls manage to clean themselves up, which I think is funny, too. After all the shit that they were through, they went through, like, plate glass windows and, like, broken bones. And Natalie even had glass in her stomach that she pulls out. At some point, when she's confronting Madison, because Madison like
0: relocates
1: her shoulder oh, after it's being right. broken. After all that, I think it's funny because they go to celebrate at Jason's premiere.
0: Yeah, well, that, that red carpet premiere's been going on for a while because yeah, there's fights going on the whole time. A
1: lot of glitter too. Yeah. like they went over the top with the plastic glitter that's floating through it. But um, they they show up to the red carpet premiere. Alex reconciles with Jason. Pete reveals after this long running premise of Dylan being afraid that. Pete was trying to propose to Natalie, it's revealed that he actually just wanted to ask her if she wanted to get a puppy with him, Mm. which she's all giddy about. And then the group celebrates, implying that Max will be the next Bosley before cutting to one last montage of bloopers, intercut with the girls washing a car to the song Any Way You Want It by Journey. So, a lot of detail, a lot going on, and I had so many other notes to include but it's like i said so much stuff that i just i couldn't even get to all of it but um i do i do like and appreciate some of the little tidbits like i said throughout the film that Mick G was referencing one also that he said referencing the last scene of the movie is that was the first shot that they did is the car wash scene because he wanted to set the tone of the film to be like over the top campy and laughing and having a good time so that was the first scene. I also really appreciate this little tidbit, too, is that Bruce Willis apparently shot all of his stuff free oh. in in exchange for the three girls doing a PSA for AdoptBusKids.org, which oh. was an organization that he was working with at the time. That's nice. So, yeah. Well, and then, of course, we get the connection between him and Demi Moore. I mean, they were divorced at this point, but... Mm. Oh, oh, one other, I'm sorry, one other really great thing that I wanted to throw in there. There's the scene where they're in, where Madison's shit-talking Charlie in the... The agency. And apparently, again, this little minor details that the set designers put together, they have what they call, quote unquote, their Angel Hall of Fame. And in the background, there's framed pictures of former angels. One of them was Jodie Foster. One of them is Janet Jackson. And then (laughs) one of them is Christy Brinkley and Tanya Roberts is the other one. And so that's why I was saying, like, I really appreciate the level of detail that went in there because... McG said he was even trying as far to get, like, Serena Williams in a cameo for that scene where the angels are replacing people. And then there's somebody else that he had in mind. I just can't think off the top of my head. So, Oh, Chelsea Clinton. That was the other one that he wanted to have as the flashback scene, just to show that, like, literally anyone could be an angel. And apparently Alex's house that they shot at was also the house that they shot the Pig Lebowski at. It's a very famous house, an old house in
0: California. Oh, Jackie Treehorn's house? I think so. Yeah, that must be it, on the beach.
1: Yeah. So I know that is a lot, and I am kind of jumping to the gun here, Joe, but I feel like this is going to kind of answer your question of like how it holds up, because that's where we're headed, right? Yes. And that 100%, I'll just keep it brief, kind of sums up, if you couldn't decide or, or couldn't can't figure that out already. That kind of just sums up, like, how I feel about this movie. Like, it's overly campy. It's ridiculous. It doesn't have a lot of story. It's visually appealing. It's just... The MTV generation. That's it. On Music videos. And yeah. People like me, who absolutely love music and videos. So, yeah. I absolutely think this holds up for me. Uh, I, f- I forget. Do you prefer this to the first Harley's Angels? I actually do. I think because there's just so many more scenes that stick out on my stick out in my head than the first one because the first one does feel like it's establishing sort of this throwback to the show but also trying to be a little more serious when it has to be opposed to this one
0: which I don't feel like is serious at all. Yeah, not at all. Uh yeah, like I actually just talking through this again I remembered the reason why I was more down on this film originally is because I was such a big fan of Crispin Glover's Thin Man in the first one that it was disappointing to see him become more of a helper in this film which really parallels I my favorite James Bond film is The Spy Who Loved Me which introduced the sidekick villain Jaws who had the metal jaws that just like bit through tables and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the next film after that was Moonraker, also one of my favorite James Bond movies, but it's kind of a downer where like they kind of turn him into like a bit of a hero by the end too. It's always like, yeah, I would have preferred if he would have still kept a villain, but whatever. So that's, I think now knowing that that's what happened and going back to this, I mean, among other things, among me not being as cynical anymore, that is a lot easier, <laughs> to, a lot easier to enjoy. But uh, big question, who is your favorite angel? That's so funny because I
1: literally (laughs) have that written right here, Joe. That was what I was going to ask you. But I'll go first since you asked me. Sure. I have always thought Natalie was my favorite. And so I would say Natalie is my favorite because she's the happy-go-lucky, just over-the-top angel that I identify with the most. Because you knew what I was like in my early 20s too. I yeah. absolutely was wearing like these, in, in my side, it was Superman underoos, <laughs> like these grown-up adult <laughs> versions of underoos that were Superman. Yeah, I was always dancing and laughing and being an idiot like she kind of is and trying to make the most of it and wanting to have a good time. And so that is the one I identify with the most. If I had to pick a second, I'd say probably Dylan because i do like yeah i don't know i do like the edge that she has you know it's essentially their version of a male character it feels like you know yeah yeah uh i I like them all i like them all for different reasons i feel like alex has always felt like the most
0: underdeveloped angel to me yeah agreed but who's yours oh it's natalie i so easily forget how much i enjoy cameron diaz But man, she's just more than any other character. She just radiates like how much fun she seems to be having on the set through the films. So, yeah, it's a real blast to be watching her.
1: Exactly. I mean, even from the beginning, where there's that scene where like that face she makes when she notices the yak, like the yak (laughs) bull or whatever the mechanical yak, it's just like so serious. And then she gets on and is having a great time. And then even when they cut the sound, and they all notice Alex and Dylan trying to escape. And there's that, like, audio of her just, like, woo in the background. <laughs> like, it's it's so great. And, in fact, I swear another commentary from McGee was, like, there's Cameron Diaz basically turning shit into, like, gold or something like that. Like, she just can light up a room. And you're right. Like, that. that's the thing I think I love the most about this movie th- throughout the entire thing is that Cameron Diaz's performance is so undeniable and scene-stealing because I could, I could pick out literally a million things, but the other one that sticks out in my head that we haven't even really covered is the burlesque scene where she's in the martini glass and mm-hmm. she's, like, got that big thing full of water, and she just goes, ooh, and like squishes it and squirts water. And it's just, it like makes no sense, but it it's just so over the top and ridiculous that I absolutely love it. So I'm glad that we agree, because yeah. I don't know. I mean, the other two are great. I feel like, like I said, it, it goes in order. It feels like they spent a lot of energy kind of like with the Natalie character, or maybe it's just the performance. And then Dylan kind of has the next most to do. And Alex is unfortunately just kind of like, yeah, kind hey, of has man.
0: the scraps for the subplot, but
1: yeah, which is unfortunate because Lucy Liu is a great actress. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, and I,
0: mean, I hope I'm, she, I hope she enjoyed her time on this movie more than working with Bill Murray in the first.
1: I, I mean, I'd hope so. She's also <laughs> the one that you can see in the blooper scene where her, handkerchief literally starts on fire. And she's like, oh my God, I'm on fire. Like, I'm glad that you took a trip down memory lane with this gel. I'm really glad you picked it, though we covered a
0: lot, but well, is it challenge time? Oh boy, yes it is. So
1: Okay, I'm ready.
0: Josh. The section of the video store that you must choose a video from is a movie that takes place primarily over the course of one night. I'm worried about this one because I've lo- I've googled lists of it and the movies that pop up like it's it's a little tough. But you know, like you might have to go more from memory than from looking at lists, but guess we can start the clock cuz like I All right. Well, yeah, we can go. And remember, you can always go with what's in the basket. Yeah. So, all right. Ready? sit, And go.
1: Okay, so my first instinct was the Before trilogy because those all sure. take place basically within 24 hours however my favorite one which is before sunset is the daytime doesn't count and doesn't count
0: nope. yes i'll so, take the first one but
1: yeah so i and then i think the next one that i'm seeing um just offhand, is does escape from new york count oh
0: yeah with yeah. Na- yeah, that's over the course of one night, right? Okay.
1: Because I've only seen that one time and I don't remember a damn thing about it. But I also think Escape from LA is another one that takes place all through all one night. But, I would imagine so. Yeah, and 10 I've, seconds. I've never actually seen Panic Room, but that one's coming up too. That's one night, yeah. Is that one? Yeah. Uh oh, shit. I don't want to pick something just for the sake and of picking something, but okay. Ready or Not. Ready or Re- Not?
0: Ready or Not the film. Yeah, that counts. Ready or Not's your choice.
1: However, we did just do a shit ton of horror. We did do a horror, and I I just want to move away from that because I I just we owe it to our listeners. So I'm gonna let you go with this one. Jim. Oh, you're going for I the basket I'm, pick. I think I'm gonna go with the basket pick just because I I'm primarily doing this because there's so many options. But I'm trying to move
0: away from a horror pick. All right. Well, before we see what's in the basket, I will say I would have accepted dazed and confused. Oh, damn. See? A lot of that isn't... That's like day and night, though. Yeah, it's both. So that's why I was moving away from that. But anyway, Um, no I mean, other ones. There's After Hours, one of my favorite Scorsese movies. uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Mm. uh, Adventures in Babysitting. Oh, damn. But, all right. So, well, let's dig in the basket. And it is... Go! Oh! I am so glad. (laughs) I am so glad I went with the basket pick. Because while it could be... A hard summary because it's a little discombobulated. It is. It's the post-Tarantino story all over the place kind of thing.
1: I do love it. The music's fantastic. The cast is A+. And again, shout out to Katie Holmes. We're going to go back to a Katie Holmes film. But I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, I'm excited to see if I like it. And if you'd like what you heard tonight, please leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For upcoming release info and other social media updates, check out at video dropbox podcast on Instagram or at video dropbox on Twitter. You can also reach us at video dropbox podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, remember to be kind and please rewind.